And today, as we continue in our series, Joy in the Journey, in the book of Philippians, Paul is going to point to two different kinds of lives. One life that is a faithful life, the other that is a foolish life. One that is focused on self, the other that is focused on the Savior. And he gives us this example when he looks at a faithful life of these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who not only looked to Christ's example of servanthood, but they actually lived out that example of servanthood. And then he points to the foolish, those who are no longer concerned with the cause of Jesus Christ because they've become caught up with the cares and the affairs of this life. And this weekend, the challenging question for us is going to be, who or what are you living for? Who or what is the number one in your life? Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Philippians 2.19, if the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling you how, telling me how you are getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proven himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come and see you soon. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to help me in my need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you. For I know you will be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him with Christian love and with great joy, and give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. It's at this point in his letter to the Philippians that he points to two examples of people that are living like Jesus. Now, why does he give us those living examples to the church? Because remember, you and I are to to develop and cultivate that servanthood of Christ, that we don't just look like Jesus, we actually start to live like Jesus. That in the midst of the problems, the pain, the persecution of this life, that we don't lose our joy, that we remain humble and obedient servants of Jesus Christ. But here's what's intriguing to me. Paul's already given us two examples. I mean, how many examples do we need before we're willing to follow them, right? And the two examples that he gave prior to Timothy and Epaphroditus was Jesus and himself. And as Paul points to his own life, he is not promoting himself pridefully. He is just simply reminding us that preachers should practice what they preach. And pastors, those of you that are listening online, I want to challenge you with this question. If you're not practicing what you preach, why are you in the pulpit? You see, here's the thing. Paul understands our human nature. He understands our tendency to completely dismiss examples if we feel like they're unattainable according to us. After all, the example of Jesus, that's God's son. There's no way I can be like Jesus. So let's just throw that example out. That's what we do. It's unattainable in my mind. Therefore, according to my feelings, I don't have to follow that example. Then we have the example of the great apostle Paul. He is a special apostle of God. There's no way I can live up to Paul's example. It's unattainable throw it out. And so what Paul does here for you and I by providing these very ordinary servants who do extraordinary things is he reminds us once again, it's not about our ability, it is about our availability. And so the first thing he talks about here is a foolish life. And and I want you to, to, to be reminded of what a foolish life looks like. 
Now remember, Paul was in house arrest. And Paul could, could not get this letter to the church himself. And so he sends others who are faithful. But listen with me to verse 21 All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Do you notice that there are only two who are faithful? And then there's all the others. There's a majority and minority. And the question is, which camp am I going to be in? And what I want you to see is not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. The majority are living a foolish life, and the minority are living a faithful life. What's the difference between living a faithful life and a foolish life? It's the focus of your life. You see, faithful followers focus on the Savior. Fools focus exclusively on self. Now, every single one of us is going to look out for number one. Every person does this. Even Timothy and Epaphrodites look out for number one. The difference is that their number one was Jesus. And it becomes absolutely critical for us to determine in our life who or what is going to become the priority and the number one because our natural tendency is to default to our number one. And if that's you, you're going to live a selfish life. Therefore, the focus will be on self. You'll live a foolish life. But if you allow Christ to be the number one in your life, your focus will be the Savior, not self, and you will live a faithful life. Paul, as I mentioned, is under house arrest. He says here that he, his desire is that once this trial is over, depending on the outcome, he would like to come and visit the church. Now, I want you to notice here, Paul is not having a pity party because he's a prisoner. His focus is not on me, me, me. His focus is on how do I serve the church even in my current circumstances. And some of us have convinced ourselves we can't serve Christ because of our current circumstances. Don't allow your circumstances to limit your service to God. Paul here says that he wants to send Timothy, but he wants to wait until he knows the outcome of the trial to send Timothy, but he doesn't want to wait to send the letter to them, and so what he does is he sends it with this man, Epaphroditus. And what I want you to see here is everything that Paul desires, all of his passions, all of his plans are all godly, but he still filters them through the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? He filters them through what is God's will in this particular situation. Because maybe the plan is to send someone to the church to encourage them at Philippi. But maybe God doesn't want to send Timothy. Maybe he wants to send somebody else. And so what we do is we don't on the front end submit our wants to God's will. And so I want to ask you, are you waiting on God's will or doing what you want? Are you submitting your wants to his will or are you trying to get him to submit his will to your wants? That's called rubber stamping your plan and just trying to get it pushed through and approved by God. You and I here are reminded of what it looks like to live a faithful life. You see, number one is a foolish life. Number two is a faithful life. And we're given two examples. One is Timothy, the other Epaphroditus. And as we look at Timothy first in Scripture, what we realize is that Timothy first met Paul on Paul's first missionary journey as he came through Lystra where he lived. And that is when Timothy was saved. His mother and grandmother were Jewish. They were very religious. They get saved. His father is a Gentile. We literally know nothing about his father. Second time that he meets Timothy is when Paul comes through in his second missionary journey. He stops in Timothy's hometown and he invites Timothy to join him on this missions trip. And it's here that you and I see Paul not only modeling Christianity for him, but choosing to mentor him as a father should mentor a son. Do you see that relationship there? They are part of the same family of faith, believers, and you have a father and a son trio that are going out to do ministry. Why is it significant 
that, that Paul tells us that little bit of information. Well, there's a lot of things we could talk about, and we will in a little bit, about mentoring. But the, the one thing I want you to notice about this is what Paul is saying is, I really know Timothy. So, so church, as I reveal some things in Timothy's life, I want you to understand, I'm not just looking at Timothy from a distance. Now, there are times where we will hear a preacher preach a message, and it's just for a half hour or whatever, and we see them from a distance, and, and there's this appearance of godliness, right? But if we were to go talk to their wife, who does life with them, we may find a different story. You see, here's the reality. We all have what I call a front stage life and a backstage life. And what most of us do with the backstage of our life, we drop the curtain, right? That's our private life. This is our public life. And what I want to challenge you is this. Does your public life and your private life match? Or is there a discrepancy? Specifically, pastors listening online, would you be nervous if your people went and talked to your wife about who you really are. Because if there's a discrepancy between your private life and your public life, then what you're presenting is not a faithful life, but a fraud. Timothy is a follower. He is not a fraud. He is the real deal. He's been doing life with Paul. He's not promoting his own agenda. Paul is pointing out several key characteristics of faithful followers. And the first thing that he points out here is that he is sympathetic. Notice what he says here. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. Circle the word genuine there. It is the real deal. It's pure. Like as you and I would look at metal, this is not sort of like some fake knockoff. You know, this is the real deal diamond, not a zirconium stone, okay? Why is that significant? Because you and I need to be really, truly genuine in our service towards people. It can't be fake. And we've all experienced that fake kind of service, right? You will never care for people until you're concerned for people. You will never be sympathetic to people's situation until you deal with self. And so I want to ask you, what is the motive behind your ministering to people? What, what is the motive behind your, your ministering in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace? Is it because you love God and you love people or you just want to look good? And this is where things can get a little messy. David said, search my heart and show me. Why? Because we don't always really know our heart. We, we think that we have a genuine heart of service. And so we go into serving people, and somewhere along the way, our heart gets a little sour because no one's noticed, no one's appreciated, and no one's made a comment yet. Now, what does that tell you? Part of your service did have to do with self. Yes, you wanted to serve people, but the moment that no one noticed self, you had a problem. And so what we do is we become self-promoters. It's what I call robbing the lighthouse. What is the purpose of a lighthouse? It is to warn ships not to come to shore where they will be wrecked, but to stay out to sea, right? From a biblical perspective, the shoreline is sin. Don't sail into sin. Sail towards the Savior. And so the light needs to be on what? The solution to sin, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time the light is on self and not on the Savior, it becomes self-promoting instead of sin warning. And we've gotten really good at figuring out how to be self-promoters and still look spiritual. One of the ways that we do that is we use social media. So we will post something, oh, I'm just not good at this, I don't feel pretty, I, whatever it is, right? And it's a self-seeking post because what happens, everyone floods our inbox with what? You're amazing, you're the greatest creation on the planet, everyone else is dirt compared to you. Well, maybe they don't go quite that far, but they say something that, that builds up your flesh, right? Notice it's not building up your faith. Self-seeking will always seek to feed the flesh, not the faith. 
Another way that we do this in the church, and we have gotten really good at looking spiritual. And the reason why is this. If we were to go and say, hey, I've been serving in the church now for like six months and no one's given me a pat on the back. Everyone would say, okay, we've got a humility problem on aisle nine. We need a cleanup over there on humility, right? Or a lack thereof. And we know that. But we're still not willing to deal with that flesh in our life. And, and so what we do is we're like, I'm going to give the appearance of godliness while still feeding the flesh. So we use prayer. Prayer is one of the greatest ways to still look spiritual and to scam people. Here's what we do. We go to our small group. Say, man, I just really need some prayer. I've just really been struggling lately. And I don't know if you know, you probably do. I've been serving in the church a lot. And, well, I've been doing this and this and this and this and this. And, oh, did I mention this, 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 and this? And, and anyway, here's the point of what I need prayer for. I just really feel like I'm overextending myself. And I'm concerned that maybe I'm taken away from my family. And it's kind of affecting my family. And I'm trying to figure out... You know, how do I build some healthy boundaries in my life? And so I really need prayerful wisdom in that. Now, why did we just tell everybody what we were doing? Because no one's appreciated us yet. Paul talked about we need to appreciate one another, but you need to let other people do that. You can't be a self-promoter. You can't go around and and self-appreciate because it's really not appreciation when I come and I guilt you into feeling bad about everything I've done so that you're going to say in the marriage, in the church, at work, you're really awesome. It's false praise. And that's what we're doing today. We're trying to feed the flesh with false praise. So how do you and I know the real motive of our heart? Is it God-centered or is it glory-centered? That is a great question for ask ourselves. Here's the ultimate question that we need to be asked. At the end of the day, do I want people to notice me or do I want them to notice Jesus? Is it God-centered or glory-centered? So he was sympathetic. How sympathetic are you to the situations of other people? Is self getting so much in the way that you really don't have a whole lot of sympathy for other people? That you're really just sympathetic towards yourself? Second thing that we see here, verse 21, he was selfless. Every, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Everybody else is focused on self. Now, here's the thing. It's not wrong to have self-interest. It's when you can't look past self-interest. It's when your whole focus stops on self and you never project past self to serving Remember verse 4, chapter 2. Don't look out only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. God's not saying don't ever think about yourself and take care of yourself and run yourself into the ground. You have some interests that you need to take care of. You need to make sure you sleep. You need to make sure that you're eating right. You need to make sure that you're in the Word of God. You need to make sure that you're praying to God. Self-care is not selfish. One of the first things they tell you when you get on a plane, and in a week when I go to Israel, I'm sure they'll tell me again, in case of uh, a loss of cabin pressure, that means you're running out of oxygen. There will be oxygen masks that fall from the ceiling. Put yours on first before you help the person next to you. Why? Because if I pass out, I can't help you. Self-care is not selfish, okay? This isn't about you and I just burning out, serving people. The old saying, you know, better to burn out than to rust away. I I think both of those are wrong. (laughs) You shouldn't sit around and just be wasting what God's given you and rusting, but at the same time, you shouldn't just be burning out. Self-care is not selfish, but here's the thing. You can't just stop with self-care. Why are you practicing self-care? It's so that you're here to serve long-term. How does Timothy cultivate this, this heart of selflessness and service. He prioritizes his personal relationships. What he does is he takes a page out of chapter 1 with the acronym JOY. Jesus first, others second, you last. We all have interests. The question is, is your primary interest self or is it the Savior? You see, what Timothy was saying here is, I want my main interest in life to be Jesus. Secondly, I want it to be serving others. And thirdly, I want it to be self. Do you see the priority of personal relationships there? Now, what's absolutely fascinating to me is Paul is going to send Timothy to 
um, Philippi to this crazy church that's got all these problems, and, and he's supposed to help them work through these issues. And what's amazing to me is Paul doesn't send him there because Timothy is the most gifted preacher. He doesn't send him there because Timothy is the most natural-born leader. He sends him there because Timothy has a servant's heart. It's not that they don't have leaders in their church. What they lack in their church is leaders with a servant's heart. And one of the things that concerns me for the church today is we are focusing almost exclusively on competency and very little on character. Let me tell you something about competency without character. People that are competent but they don't have the character to back it up are not just a curse in the church. They are a cancer. Can I ask you this question? When was the last time you heard of a, of a uh, leadership conference for pastors that could better themselves? They're all over the country. You can go to millions of them. When was the last time you heard one that talked about developing a servant's heart? You see, today what we're doing in the church is we're saying we just need more competent people. Because, again, we're carrying the ministry forward, right? No, Christ is doing the work. We have the competency. And I'm not saying we can't look for competent people. I'm not saying we just go out and find inept people. But I'm saying it's about availability. Not your ability. And you and I need to start cultivating that servant's heart. There were plenty of competent people in that church. The problem was a lack of character. Third thing that we see in a faithful follower is it says that he had proved himself he was seasoned. It is a wonderful thing when you and I see saints Believers in Jesus Christ who are going through trials and remaining faithful. That's how you get seasoned. You spend some time in the trenches living out God's truth. You see, you and I need to understand here that when we get to heaven, we're either going to hear or not hear these words of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, I want you to embed that in your mind. Jesus doesn't say, well done, good and fruitful servant. See, you can't be a fruitful servant without being a faithful servant. But you can be a faithful servant and not necessarily be a fruitful servant. There are people today who have given up everything to go to other countries to be a missionary. They have served their whole life. They've never seen one convert. They have been absolutely faithful to the call. They come home. Somebody else comes in their place and all of a sudden we see a flood of fruit, right? What was that fruit about? Was it just a different person? No, it was a faithful issue. And if you're in a ministry today where you are experiencing fruit, be careful you don't become prideful and, and you become prayerful and you are thanking the people that came before you that were faithful. Do you realize as a church, we still have, as a body of believers at Mitchell Brian Church, our founding member, Virginia Wilson. She's right here in this service right now, praising Jesus. But she was faithful when there was only two or three people meeting in her house. She's been faithful year after year after year after year, and her faith has not been based on the fruit. And some of us were like, well, just not seeing the fruit I want, I'm out of here. I'm done with ministry, right? Now, Timothy started like we all start. He was a novice. And then he remained faithful, and he became a rookie. And he remained faithful, and eventually he became a seasoned saint. Church, here's the reality. We're all going to become senior saints. But are we all going to become seasoned saints? What's the difference between the two? Well, a senior saint, all you need is time. <laughs> you live long enough, you'll become a senior saint. You'll hobble in here. You'll struggle to hear things, and maybe there'll be times you turn your hearing aid down during the sermon, and you say, oh, maybe this is a blessing, <laughs> But you see, we're not all going to become seasoned saints because seasoned saints, it's not just time, it's time and truth. Truth in God's word, following God, being faithful to God. Here's the thing that you and I need to understand today. There are a lot of us that we want the title, but we don't want the time in the trenches. We want the badge, but we don't want the battles. Are you willing 
to be faithful to God even when it doesn't seem fruitful. Because here's what you need to understand. We don't step into leadership. We grow into leadership and we groan into leadership. And today what we're doing in our culture with participation trophies and just saying you show up and we'll just, that's a good enough. It's not. We need people that are proven to be faithful. Paul said, entrust these things to faithful men. Why? Because if you're not willing to be faithful with a little, why would we give you a lot? One of the things that's happened in the church, sadly, is, and I think it's because of the mega, mega church mentality, where we've got pastors making six-figure salaries and living in 20, 25,000 square foot homes, and, and they almost look like kings, is we've, we've bought into this mentality that the pinnacle of success in the church today is a senior pastor position. Let me tell you, the senior pastor position should never be the pinnacle of success in a church. It should be the pinnacle of servanthood in the church. And if you've got a pastor that just wants to look successful and doesn't want to serve, you've got a major problem because you've got an issue with self going on there. This position has literally afforded me the privilege of being puked on. Literal stomach contents shower. Not fun. Smells horrible. Wouldn't recommend it. But it comes with a position. If you're going to deal with alcoholic people, You're going to deal with sick people. You're going to deal with some of those things. This position has afforded me the privilege of being bled on as I took people up to the emergency room. It has afforded me the position and the privilege of being cussed out, talked about, get down on my hands and knees and wash people's feet. It's it's not this position as we think of from the world. It's not a position of success, it's a position of service, and it has to be because Jesus said, even the Son of Man who has the greatest position at some day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? That's a pretty high position, the highest position. Even He didn't come to be served, but to be a servant of all. And what I want you to see here is what happens to seasoned saints. They get a little bit of recognition and a whole lot of responsibility. Timothy's name is mentioned, and most of us are like, oh, I would just love for my name to be mentioned positively in the Bible. Wouldn't that be great? Every time a preacher would preach on me, it would really look good about me. But what I want you to understand is it's really not about the recognition. It's about the responsibility, right? Because he mentions here and he says, I'm sending Timothy. Why? Why is he giving Timothy this incredibly hard responsibility of going and dealing with a really broken church? I mean, honestly, that's not what most pastors coming out of seminary really want to deal with. It's a huge responsibility to have to deal with broken people and hurt people and people that have been mean to each other and self-centered. It's because he's seasoned. It's because he's proved that he's genuine. He's the real deal. He cares about people. And I think it's the number one reason why most of us coast in our Christianity. We really don't want to become seasoned. We would prefer to become saints who are senior than seasoned. Because you see, seasoned saints, they have a lot of responsibility and very little recognition. And today what we want in the church is we want a lot of recognition with very little responsibility. It's not biblical. Now some of you feel at a disadvantage because you feel like You did not have a dad in your life that modeled and mentored Christianity for you. I was fortunate to have a dad that did that. I left home at nine to go to boarding school. So I want you to understand, within those first nine years, you will be setting up your kids for success or failure to some degree spiritually. But here's the thing. Even if you've blown it as a dad, even if you were at a place where you had a dad that blew it, there is hope. How do we know that? Because Timothy's dad is absolutely absent on the pages of Scripture. Now, we don't know here if if it was the problem and plague we're facing today of deadbeat dads or if he just died. I mean, we really don't know why he's not mentioned. But here's the thing. Even though he didn't have that model and that mentor of a man as a father in his life, he still became a seasoned saint. How? He allowed himself to be mentored by an older, more mature man in the faith. Some of you as ladies, you need a woman in your life to mentor you. We should all be in a position in our life where two things are happening. We're mentoring and modeling things for other people, and we ourselves are being mentored. Our youth, you are modeling for our little kids 
what it looks like to be a Christian. And you have people in your life that are modeling it for you. And so we're all in this twin reality of of not just having a mentor, but also being a mentor and a model in people's lives. Dave Schroeder, who is one of our missionaries that we support, started a ministry called Mentoring Timothy up in Montana. And the goal of that is young men who are coming out of high school, maybe not sure what they want to do with their life, maybe didn't have a dad that built into their life spiritually. It's a place where they can go and they can experience and be mentored one-on-one for up to nine months. And some of you, you've got nephews, you've got friends, you've got people that you know that maybe that's exactly what they need. And I would encourage you to check that out. But Look for people in your life who are looking and living like Jesus and then go do life with them. You see, it's here that we come to Epaphroditus and what's interesting is some of you never even knew that he existed until today. And that's understandable because he's really only mentioned twice, once here and then in chapter 4 very briefly in the book of Philippians. You see, we know very, very little about his life. His name actually is a pagan name. It it means to belong to Aphrodite. Remember, Aphrodite was the pagan god of pleasure and procreation. So this kind of gives you a little bit of an idea what was going on in his parents' life prior to his conversion, his background. I mean, it's just not a very cool thing for a Christian to be named after the God of sex, okay? That doesn't come across as very godly. It comes across as very pagan, right? And what I want you to understand here is this. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to break you free from the prisons and the past of your pagan thinking and living. And some of you, you still have a pagan past, The gospel's big enough to break you free from that prison. Some of you can look back to your pagan past and you almost walk around with guilt. We should never walk around and look at it as a badge of honor. I was a bad boy. I mean, that's not a good mentality as a Christian. But here's the thing. Never be ashamed of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. It is your testimony of how he took you from trash to absolute treasure. And and, and I just... I want to encourage you, parents, be careful about putting paganism into your kids. None of us, I hope, would ever think when we were naming that beautiful little baby boy or girl, I think I'm going to name it after the God of sex. They belong to this pagan God. That's a good name. But how many of us today are putting little pieces of the puzzle together, pagan pieces in our kids' lives? We're starting to help them to think from a worldly idea instead of the word. The church here, when they hear of Paul's plight, they, their hearts respond with action. And I love that because it's easy for us to just feel bad for people, right? But, but it's got to be more than just that. And so they take up this offering, but here's the challenge. Who's going to take it from Philippi to Rome? And this is where Epaphrodites comes in. Now, that reveals two things about him. One is he is trustworthy. Trustworthy to go on a dangerous and difficult journey and be trusted with someone else's money. Are you trustworthy? Secondly, he was courageous. As I mentioned, dangerous, difficult journey. He could have been robbed. He could have been killed on the way, especially carrying money in in that day and age. You and I need to understand, depending on the route that he took, it would have been like 700 to 1,200 miles. So giving perspective, that would be like you and I going to Lincoln and coming back at shortest. And by the way, we're doing this on foot and we're also on a sailboat, not a speedboat. Or at longest, this would be like going to Lincoln, coming back, and then going to Lincoln again, which I have no idea why you do after you've experienced the wonders of western Nebraska. But that's the picture of what this would look like. Depending on the weather, if it were favorable, it would take six weeks. If it was less favorable, it could have taken three months. I'll go. 
I'm up for that kind of a difficult, dangerous journey. Why? Because I'm a courageous Christian. I'm not a coward. Is that you today? Are you taking the path of least resistance? Or are are you stepping into the things that God's calling you to do and not stepping in with fear but with faith? But see, he was also courageous for this reason. Because he associated himself with Paul. They weren't just sending him to drop off a gift. There you go, Paul. See you later, buddy. I'm on my way home. No, he was going to become a partner with Paul. Do you know how lonely leadership is? There are a lot, a lot, a lot of lonely pastors I know. Some of you, you're in positions, you're surgeons, you're judges, you're principals in school, you're in leadership, and leadership can be incredibly lonely because everyone's armchair quarterbacking what you should have done or could have done, and it gets lonely at times. Because people don't want to actually do life with you. They just want to criticize you. Do you know how big of a blessing this was that the church were like, we're going to free him up. Do you know how big of a blessing it was for Epaphroditus to say, I have the courage to stand with you, Paul, because here's the thing. It could go bad. You ever heard of guilty by association? If it goes bad for Paul and I'm associated with Paul, I could, I could end up going to prison or worse. And some of us were playing it safe today because we, we worry more about our lives than about other people. Now, I want you to see here a a tragic thing that happened and a reality that Paul talks about, and that is that while Epaphroditus was serving Jesus, he almost died. Let me tell you, serving God does not guarantee you a pain-free or a problem-free life, but it does guarantee you a purpose-driven and a peace-filled life. So are you pursuing today a problem-free life or a purpose and peace filled life, a passionate life for Jesus. Again, Epaphroditus, Paul is looking at him not from a distance. He's done life with him and he's revealing the real person. And again, we learn several lessons for you and I on faithful followers. And the first is he was a servant. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother and co-worker and fellow soldier. No matter where he was, like Timothy, he just served. And Paul gives him three titles to reveal that servanthood for you and I to understand the commitment of that servanthood. To Paul, he was a brother. To the ministry, he was a worker. And to spiritual warfare, he was a soldier. Now, why does Paul call him a brother? When you and I get saved, we become part of the same family of faith. That means that you have spiritual siblings. You don't just have a physical family, you have a spiritual family. Now here's the question for you and I. How are you currently treating your spiritual siblings? Your family of faith, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now here's the question that we would rather get asked. How have your spiritual siblings treated you? Do you remember Joseph? Boy, his family didn't treat him very good. How did Joseph respond? How are you going to respond? Are you going to react and retaliate or are you going to respond in people's life with love? See, here's the thing. Some of us today are still hung up on the hurts of what other Christians have done to us and we're still focused on how our spiritual siblings are teaching and and helping us or not versus how are we treating our spiritual siblings. Let me ask you this question, church. How are you talking about the other pastors in this community? You better not be bad-mouthing other believers. Some of us, we don't treasure each other. We trash each other because we make it more about our feelings than we do about being faithful. Here's the reality. What we have in common is Christ. Our family is built on our faith. It is not built on our color. It is not built on our customs, on our culture, on our preferences. There is absolutely no room for racism for the redeemed. And if there's a part of your life where you struggle racially or, or socially with people or, or, or sexually with people where you're looking down on people and treating them wrong that are brothers and sisters in Christ, and you need to check your heart because what you're doing is you're basing the family on your feelings, not on your faith. It's here that you and I are also reminded that he was a worker. Do you know it's really easy to be a watcher? You know, sometimes you drive by on a construction route and there seems to be one worker and ten watchers. How many people do you need to hold up the shovel? I don't know. Ten. Sounds like a good number. 
But what I want you to see here is Epaphroditus was a worker. Why are there not more workers and why are there so many watchers in the church today? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. Some of them are legitimate. Most of them are lame. And I think when we stand before the Lord, we're probably going to hear lame more than we are legitimate. But I think one of the reasons is because we don't see it as our responsibility. We see it as someone else's responsibility. Therefore, it is their problem. And here's what happens with this. We become like the guys who were shipwrecked and found themselves in a leaky lifeboat. And there were a couple of guys at one end that were furiously working to bail the water, a couple of guys in the other end of the boat that were watching the workers. And those that were watching, one of them turned to his fellow watcher and he said to him, aren't you glad that the hole's not in our end of the boat? Now here's what you and I need to understand. We are all in the same boat together, but we forget that, right? And because we project the problem to be at your end of the boat, therefore it's not my responsibility. How do we do this practically in the church? Well, let's talk about our children's ministry for a moment, okay? Those of you who have junior high on up age kids, you tend to look at nursery, children's church, younger kids ministry as not my problem. I did my time like it was a prison sentence. When my kids were that age, I was in there serving. So guess what, young families? The holes at your end of the boat, bail. Because we're not. We're going to watch you work this time. We worked last time. Here's how young families are sitting in the boat. We've been bailing all week. You don't have any little rugrats running around. Your kids are all older. You have time what if, what if you would just help out and we could one time sit in a service and just enjoy listening to the sermon and being f- fed in our faith? And so they perceive the problem is at our end of the boat. Can I ask you, are we or are we not all in the same boat? Does it really matter if you are a young family with kids or even if you're a young person without kids in a family or you're a senior saint Does it still matter when it comes to our kids in this church? Or has that become someone else's problem? They're the future of this church. And if we communicate to our kids, I don't care about you. You think they're going to care about the church? I mean, if the church doesn't start caring for its kids, that's why they're leaving in droves. I guarantee you, if kids felt absolutely loved by the Lord and loved by God's people in church, if we were the church... They would never want to leave. And when they did leave, the first thing they do when they went to college is say, man, I want to get connected into another church. That was a really good experience in my life as a kid. Are you going to be a watcher or a worker? Because here's the reality. Jesus Christ didn't save us to be fans in the stands. He saved us to be the faithful out on the field. It also says here he was a soldier. When you enlist, it is no longer your life. You are listening to the commander and you are committed to the point where you're willing to lay down your life for the Lord. You see, it's also here that we are reminded that he was sensitive. I'm sending him back because, verse 26, he has been longing to see you and he was very distressed that you heard that he was ill. That is absolutely amazing to me. That Epaphroditus was stressed because other people were stressed about him. When was the last time you were worried about the people that were worried about you? Now, when I use the phrase sensitive here, there's a whole bunch of men go, I ain't going to be sensitive. Okay, we were just told to be soldiers, right? You okay with being a soldier, guys? You should be. Otherwise, you need to return in your man card right now. But here's the thing. We're called to be sensitive soldiers. Sensitive is not weak. It is aware. Because if you and I are not going to be sensitive soldiers, we will become calloused Christians and that will destroy your marriage. You need to be sensitive to what's going on in your wife's life. You need to be sensitive to what is going on in your kid's life and in the life of your community. And one of the problems in the church, we've become callous today. We're no longer sensitive. You see, here's the thing. Paul sent Epaphroditus back to the church because they heard that he was on death's doorstop. That at any moment he could die. And you have to remember, this was not Paul just texted or tweeted, he's doing fine. 
Somebody had to physically go back and relay the message. And how amazing would that be if it was Epaphroditus? Imagine if we had committed one of our saints to go and to serve one of our missionaries that was really struggling and we heard that they were on death's door. Would we be stressed about that? I hope so. Would we be showing up and saying, man, we got to pray for this guy? I hope so. But what absolutely amazes me here is, is Epaphroditus goes through a near-death experience, and what is he stressed about? The people that are worried about him. If you had almost died this week, you would want people to be concerned about you, right? But would you be concerned over the people that were concerned about you? And what I want you to understand is the level of distress Because the word for distressed here is used in one other place in the New Testament. You know where it's at. You're just going to be shocked when I tell you. Remember when Christ went to the cross? Before the cross, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says that he was in anguish, anxiety. So much stress and distress in his life that he sweat great drops of blood. Same words used here. Are you that distressed for people today? Now, we talk about stress all the time and how we need to get stress out of our life because it's killing us, right? But here's the problem. We're getting distressed over the wrong things. There are some of us today that got stressed out and allowed our whole week to be ruined because Starbucks got the wrong order to us. They absolutely ruined my latte. And so I am just stressed. Can I ask you? Are you stressed about your latte or about the lost? Does it bother you and keep you up at night that your neighbor is going to hell? Because we have become so stressed out about the wrong things today. And here's the thing. Those of you who think you're macho and you are not sensitive, here's the reality. We're all sensitive. It's just some are sensitive to self, some are sensitive to serving. And what you become sensitive to will determine who you become. If you are sensitive to self, you will become a snowflake. If you are sensitive to serving Jesus Christ, you will become a soldier. And here's the thing. There are no room for snowflakes in the kingdom of God. We need soldiers. Why? Because there are no safe spaces when you say yes to serving Jesus. You don't just get to curl up in a ball with your blankie and suck your thumb because the enemy is coming at you and he's coming at you hard and he's going to. And you're going to have fears that come at you. You're going to have distresses in your life. You're going to have all of these things that come at you. But here's the question. What are you going to allow yourself to get stressed out about? Are you stressed out about the cause of Jesus Christ and lost people that need to hear about the kingdom of heaven? You see, it's here lastly that he was sacrificial. Notice he risked his life for the work of Christ. When was the last time you were sacrificial in your service? Here's what's amazing. The word that is used here is only used here when it says he risked. It is a gambling term that Paul uses. It means to stake everything on the roll of a dice. Now, Paul is not talking about gambling. He is talking about God. But have you ever seen those, those Texas Hold'em tournaments where they've got all their chips, right? And some guy's been really successful. He's got a whole pile, and he does this. I'm all in. Now, if the wrong cards get turned up, he's all out. He didn't leave anything in reserve as a backup. See, that's Philemon. I'm all in, Jesus. And how many of us today, we're holding back when it comes to God because we really don't trust him with our lives. And so I want to ask you, when was the last time you really truly had to sacrifice in serving Jesus? You see, today we want service to be nice and clean and make us feel good. And if it isn't, we're going to quit because it's really truly about ourselves. But here's the thing. It will cost you something. Do you remember when David went to buy land that later his son would build the temple on. And I love the guy's response when he heard what what David wanted to do. I'm buying this to to have a piece of land that we're going to build the temple on where we worship God. It's all about God. The guy said, you can just have it. And what did David say? Awesome, free stuff. I love free stuff. I love giving nothing to God. No, he refused. He said, I want to pay top dollar because here's why. I refuse to give to God something that didn't cost me. Later on, John Henry would say, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. 
I want to close with this devotional thought. It's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. It's challenging. It's clarifying. And it says this. When a boy or a girl gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning to deliver newspapers, to go to swim practice, most people say, there's a go-getter. But if the church should ask that same boy or girl to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning to do some work for the Lord, they would say that's asking too much. The world, go get her. The word, a little too much. If a man or woman spent eight hours working a job or working their garden, they would call them energetic and responsible. If, however, they were willing to do the same thing for the Lord, people would say that's taking it too far. If someone ties themselves down by making payments of 500 a month for an item of personal enjoyment, a boat, a camper, then people would say to them they're making a good investment in their health. But if that same person placed that much in an offering plate to God, people would call them crazy. And it is a crazy world indeed when the first things become last and the last things become first. I'm going to pray, and I want you to watch a very, very short video of children's ministry. We're highlighting children's ministry this week. It's not the only place you can serve, but I want to encourage you. Are we going to be watchers or workers that are willing to get in and bail? Because what I see is a lot of people that want to bail and not bailing the water. They physically just want to bail. I don't want to serve. I want to be served. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for how you speak into our lives and you challenge us. And it's very convicting to me. And so I pray that we would be found to be faithful and not foolish. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. I am Amy Ruder and the Children's Ministry Director. We serve kiddos from birth through fifth grade. We have nursery for infant and toddlers and children's church. And then during our life group hour, we have our Awana program that we run for ages birth through second grade. And then for our third through fifth graders, we have pre-chaos. Each week, we serve between 50 to 60 kiddos between our toddler and infant nursery and children's church. We have a great team of volunteers that show up each week with a smile on their face. They're here ready to play with the kiddos, read a story to them, or just snuggle. God has been faithful to fill our current schedule of volunteers. But with our growth, that's going to cause our schedule to grow, so we need more volunteers. We're currently in need of one to two adults per service in each room. We ask that you give approximately an hour and a half a month to serve. Children's ministry is more than just nursery and children's church. There's several different opportunities to serve throughout the year. If you feel the calling to serve in children's ministry, I'd love to visit with you and get you plugged in.